Let me read the, the passage. We're in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. But the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In 2012, an Australian caregiver by the name of Bronnie Ware wrote a book about her experiences in palliative care. And one of the subjects that she discussed was the regrets that people had or expressed at the end of their lives. There were five regrets that dying people told her about most often. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd let myself be happier. There was a similar academic study done on the same subject in 2011 that asked a representative sample of 270 Americans to describe one significant life regret. And the six most commonly reported regrets in this study involved romance, family, education, career, finance, and parenting. And this is a sad reality that many people come to their lives, come to the end of their lives with significant regrets. I remember Howard Hendricks, one of the most loved professors at Dallas Seminary, saying in the class, men, now in those days, back in the dark ages, there were only men at Dallas. (laughs) But he would say, men, You don't want to spend your whole life climbing the ladder of success only to find when you reach the top that it's leaning against the wrong wall. That would be regret. And 
order to avoid regret at the end of our lives, we need to make right decisions now. We need to make the right decisions about the things that are truly important and truly important in eternity as well. We don't want to come to the end of our lives with regret about eternal realities. And this is what we find in our passage today as Jesus is bringing his sermon, that is the Sermon on the Mount, He's bringing his sermon to a close, and he is calling those listening to him and us to make a decision, the decision to follow him and embrace the new way of kingdom living that he has set forth in the Sermon on the Mount. He's calling us for a decision. And so I've entitled our message today, Decision Time. As I've indicated, um, and this is what is important about the context of our passage, Jesus has now basically completed his instruction in his sermon, Sermon on the Mount on what it means to live as a follower of Jesus and to be part of the kingdom of God that he's bringing to earth. It's a radically different kind of life that he has set forth in the sermon. It's a radically different kind of righteousness. It's countercultural and it's counterintuitive. It's such things like being poor in spirit. And gentle and merciful, pure in heart, rejoicing in persecution and being non-retaliatory and forgiving and loving our enemies and laying up treasures in heaven as opposed to treasures on earth and trusting God for in our anxieties for the needs we have in this world. This is this is what kingdom living and following Jesus to be like. But what if Jesus had concluded his sermon with last week's passage that we looked at? If you don't remember what that is, it was ask, and you shall receive, seek, and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened. And then what we call the golden rule, do to others as you would have others do to you. What if he'd concluded right there, and that, that was the end. What might have been lacking, <clears throat> if that was the case? A call to respond, a call to commit, a call to decision. And that's what he's doing now in our passage today. He begins with the imagery of making a decision or deciding between two gates. Verse 13, well, he says, decide to enter the narrow gate and walk the narrow path. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. 
and many there are, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few there are few are those who find it. So, in this passage, Jesus talks about two gates: a narrow gate and a wide gate. He speaks of two ways or paths, a narrow way and a broad way. And he speaks of two groups, the few and the many. Two gates, two ways, and two groups. What's he saying here? The gates represent an entrance. The narrow gate, he says, is the entrance into life. And the wide gate, he says, is the entrance into destruction. Now, it's clear from the context that the narrow gate is the decision to follow Jesus. Jesus is claiming here exclusivity to the way of life. It's the narrow gate. That's the way to life. There is one way that leads to life. There are not many ways. There are not. The entrance into life is very narrow. It's implicit here, but not spelled out just yet to us at this point. That will come later. But our entrance into life is through faith in Jesus. Technically, that's the gate. That's the narrow gate. Faith. In Jesus. It's the narrow gate because there is only one way to life. How narrow is that gate? Well, this is what Jesus said in John 14 No one comes to the Father but through me. How narrow is that gate? Well, what did Peter say? In Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one name. There's only one way. It's the narrow gate. How narrow is it? Well, what does the Apostle Paul say in 1 Timothy? There is one God and one mediator also between God and men. One mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The gate into life is a narrow gate. Entering through the narrow gate gives us eternal life. And then Jesus envisions that as we enter through that gate, We continue on the path of following him, and that is the narrow path to follow Jesus. His ways are different from the ways of the world. The ways of the Sermon on the Mount are the opposite of the ways of the world. Following Jesus, 
living for Jesus is a narrow path. But it is this path that leads to life, the fullness of life now. And he says, and few there are who find it. Meaning that the truly dedicated, committed, faithful followers of Jesus are few. Few in comparison to the world and few in comparison to even those who in some way profess the name of Jesus. Those on the narrow path, who really walk the narrow path, Jesus said, are few. The wide gate and the broad path are the way of the world. It's the way of world religions. It's the way of humanistic philosophies and self-improvement. It's the way that looks upon the exclusivity of Jesus as being narrow-minded. And there are many on this path, and their end, Jesus says, is destruction. So at the end of his sermon, Jesus is calling for a decision. He's setting before us two gates, two waves or paths of life, and two destinies calling us to make a choice. The wide path of the many, the popular, the accepted, but it ultimately leads to destruction. Or will we follow the narrow path of the few, but which leads to life? He has set two gates and two paths before us. Which one will you choose? After calling for a decision, Jesus warns about the possible distraction of being led astray by false teachers. So we need to be discerning about teachers. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus is giving us a warning here. This is a reality of which we must be aware. This is real. There are false teachers. Not everyone who claims the name of Jesus and even teaches the Bible, from the Bible, is a true teacher of the word. I mean, he says it right here. There are those who come in sheep's clothing. That means they look like like the sheep. And they appear to be innocent. You don't know them necessarily by the way they look. But in reality, they are ravenous wolves. They are seeking to devour the sheep for their own benefit. They will use the sheep and take advantage of the sheep. While all the while, 
proclaiming the name of Jesus. They used Jesus and his name to take advantage of the sheep. Excuse me. Well, how can we recognize them? Jesus says, verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. You You can recognize them by their fruits. You see, in the plant world, fruit is what a plant or a tree produces. Self-evident. As it applies to teachers, fruit is the manifestation of their lives. You'll know them by their fruit, what their lives produce, the manifestation of their lives. And there are two kinds of false teachers. First, there are teachers of false doctrine, teaching that which is contrary to the accepted orthodox teaching of the church. They twist scripture for their own benefit, as well as adding their dreams and visions and revelations, which is intended to give authority to their false teaching. This is the fruit by which they can be known and recognized by their doctrine. But there's a second kind of fruit of false teachers. There are false teachers who, even though his or her doctrine may be correct, may have correct doctrine, the fruit of their personal lives and character puts them in the category of a false teacher. By your fruits, by their fruits, you will know them. Manipulation, intimidation, excessive focus on money and material things, no matter how gifted they may seem in teaching They are false teachers. You will know them by their fruits, the fruit of false doctrine and the fruit of corruption in their lives. Jesus is saying, be discerning. Examine their teaching. Examine their lives. Don't be pulled off of the narrow path by these false teachers. And then to support his point, that their fruit is an indication of who they really are, Jesus gives us an illustration from nature. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? What is he saying? It's a principle that is recognizably true. A species will produce only what is consistent with its nature. Thorn bushes will never produce the good fruit of grapes. Thistles will never produce the good fruit of figs. And when Jesus asked the question, can you get grapes and figs from bushes and thistles? The answer is self-evident, of course not. No way that will never could never happen. His point is the fruit in a person's life, doctrine and character, indicates who or what that person really is. Doctrine and character. 
And then he makes the point once again, verse 17. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad trees bear bad fruit. Any tree will produce according to its nature. Will produce fruit according to its nature. If the tree is good, then the fruit will be good. If the tree is bad, then the the fruit will be bad. This is just a law of nature. And therefore, if you see the bad fruit of false doctrine and bad character, then the tree is bad. And then he reiterates the principle again to stress the certainty of it. Verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Again, the principle is that a a tree will produce that which is according to his nature. It cannot be the other way. A strong, healthy tree will not and cannot produce bad or sickly fruit. And there is no way a sickly tree can produce good quality fruit. And then Jesus comments on the value and usefulness of a tree that is not bearing good quality fruit. Verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Remember, Jesus is still using the imagery of the vineyard or the orchard. He's using that imagery here. And if there is a tree in the vineyard or the orchard that does not bear good quality fruit, well, of what value is it? Why do you have a tree that's not producing any fruit? Its purpose is to produce fruit. If it doesn't, well, it needs to be cut down, getting out of the way, thrown into the fire and used for firewood. This is not the fire of hell. It's not what he's saying here. It's part of the imagery. This is what happens to trees in a garden that don't bear fruit. They're cut down and put in the fire. They're burned. But what is his point? His point is, if a teacher, in this context, if a false teacher is not producing good fruit, and the implicit And implicit is the idea, of course, that he or she remains unrepentant. That's just the way they are. They're confronted about their false teaching. They're confronted about their character, and they, they don't change. They're unrepentant, and they continue in it. If he's not producing good fruit in doctrine or character, then the church does not need that individual person should be removed from the church just like a bad fruit tree is removed from the garden and as the bad tree is burned up the false teacher should be removed chastised rebuked and not allowed to teach and the followers of Jesus should not listen to them Well, in verse 20, we've come full circle as to what Jesus said in verse 16. So then, you'll know them by their fruits. 
That's what he started with in verse 16. That's how he concludes here. Now false teachers can be known and recognized by the evidence of their lives and their teaching. And Jesus is making the point very strongly that we should be discerning about those to whom we listen. Teachers in the church, teachers of the word, whether it's in the local church, whether it's those we listen to and follow on social media, whatever, television. He's making this point because it's very easy to be led astray. Remember, they come in sheep's clothing. You don't recognize them immediately. But don't be led off a narrow path by a false teacher. Jesus then gives a warning to some who would try to straddle the narrow path and the wide path. They've got one foot in each. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. So he talks here about the need to go all in for Jesus. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let's be honest, this is kind of a frightening scenario. Come up to the judgment day, you say, Lord, Lord. He says, uh-uh, not everyone who says that is going to enter. But we don't have to fear it. We don't have to fear it. To whom is Jesus referring that say to him, Lord, Lord, but are denied entrance into the kingdom? Who are they? They are those who acknowledge Jesus in some way as Lord. They may even say, well, we should follow Jesus. But obviously something is missing. They say Lord in some way, but he says that's not enough for entrance into the kingdom. What's missing? He says those who enter, those who do enter, he says do the will of the Father. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what, is, what does it mean? Those who do the will of the Father. Does this refer to some kind or measure of works, of, of obedience, those who are really committed and super committed to do the works of obedience, to follow the Sermon on the Mount and the other teachings of Scripture, only those who are super committed to do those works? I don't think this would be the case because that would make entrance into the kingdom based on works. If it's only those who do the works of righteousness, do the, the will of my Father in that sense. So what is it? Well, in this passage, those who say, Lord, Lord, are, but are denied entrance, are those who acknowledge Jesus in some way that he's worthy to follow 
he's, he's a great religious leader. But they do not confess him as the Son of God who has come in the flesh and is the only Savior of the world. This is the will of the Father. And Jesus will later say, doesn't say it here, but he will later say in John chapter 6 and verse 40, this is the will of my Father. Same exact words. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. There are those, you see, who acknowledge Jesus as a religious figure and give him respect, but they have not embraced him as the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. And because of this, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But they will protest on that day. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, come on, come on. Didn't, didn't we prophesy in your name? And, and in your name, we, we cast out demons. And, and in your name, we performed miracles. They protest because they did have some kind of association with Jesus. They were religious people. They may have been religious leaders. They prophesied in his name. They spoke about him. They, they, they taught about him. And they cast out demons and perform miracles in his name. There's two ways we can understand this. Either they supposedly cast out demons and did miracles, but it was some kind of shenanigan that gave the appearance of that. Or Satan empowered them to perform miraculous deeds. And I kind of favor the first, but it could be either. But they went about ostensibly doing good in Jesus' name, giving the appearance of supernatural acts, but they were really doing it for themselves. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And Jesus will say to them, in spite of their acknowledgement of Lord, Lord, in spite of their religious activity in his name, depart from me, because I never knew you. You never really embraced me for who I am, the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. Since you don't know me as that, then I don't know you as one of mine. You were partially there, but you wouldn't go all in. And Jesus is saying to those who are trying to walk on both paths, the narrow way and the broad way, that won't work. It may be appealing to some. It may gain some respectability for you. But unless you go all in and confess Jesus as the Son of God and the only Savior of the world... And he will say that you are not one of mine. So let's try to sum up what we've seen today. Following his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is now calling for a decision. He begins with two gates and two paths and two destinations. A narrow gate, a narrow path that leads to life, 
a wide gate, and a broad path that leads to death. Jesus is calling us to make a choice. Enter the narrow gate. The wide path of the many, the popular, the accepted, but it ultimately leads to destruction. Or the narrow path of the few, which leads to life. Just make a choice. And then he warned about not being led astray from the narrow path by false teachers. False teachers who are recognized as such by their fruit. The first fruit is their doctrine. Teaching their own doctrine for their self-promotion. The second fruit is the character of their lives. Is their true godliness exemplified in humble, faithful service? Or is their self-promotion and the use and manipulation of people for their own purposes and advancement? Intimidation, abuse, greed and love of money, material things, and often sexual impropriety. Regardless of their doctrine, these things characterize them as a false teacher. Because as Jesus said, good trees do not produce bad fruit. According to this, Ravi Zacharias is, was a false teacher. His doctrine was impeccable. But now we understand that he lived a life of duplicity and corruption. And there was no repentance when he was confronted. He was confronted about his sin with a woman, and he threatened to sue them. There was no repentance. That puts Ravi Zacharias in the category of a false teacher. We didn't know it at the time. People like Mark Driscoll, James McDonald, Jerry Falwell Jr. All have corrupt lives, famous teachers, but corrupt lives. They've been exposed and they are unrepentant. They threaten lawsuits against people that expose them. Unrepentant. There are false teachers, and Jesus says, be aware, be discerning. And then he warns of rejection at the final judgment. Those, there will be those who have called Jesus Lord, but who will be rejected by him. Their recognition of Jesus as Lord is one of respect and admiration, even that of an esteemed religious leader. But they had not gone all in to confess him as the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. So what is the message to us today as Jesus calls us to a decision? It's decision time. Make sure we've entered through that narrow gate of faith alone in Jesus as our Savior. And we are walking the narrow path of faithful obedience and discipleship. It's a narrow path, so don't worry about what others say or think. It's the path that leads to life. 
And even if it's just a few, let's walk that path together. Let's encourage one another to walk that path, the narrow path. Let's be discerning about teachers and those to whom we listen. Examine the fruit, the fruit of their doctrine, the fruit of their lives. Good trees do not produce bad fruit. If you see bad fruit, then it's not a good tree. And let's make sure we're all in for Jesus. The respectability of the many on the broad road is not worth it in the end. Let's go all in for Jesus as the Son of God, the only Savior of the world. As I said at the beginning today, we want to avoid, avoid regret at the end of our lives. The only way we can do that is to make right decisions now and continue on with those decisions. Make the right decision for the narrow gate, the narrow path. And there will be no regrets about being all in for Jesus. Because it's the path that leads to life. Let's pray. Thank you, gracious Father, again for your word that you've given to us. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, who is the Son of God, the only Savior of the world. And Lord, we want to follow him. We want to be wise and discerning to avoid those who would lead us astray, and we want to stay on that narrow path that leads to life. We want to be all in. So, Lord, I pray that you would use your word today to encourage us and strengthen us. For any who have not made that decision to enter the narrow gate through Jesus alone, May they place their faith and trust in him today, Lord. For those who are, have wandered off the narrow way, bring them back, Lord, to your ways to follow you. And strengthen us, Lord, to, to stay on that narrow path. Be with us, Lord, we pray, and may we encourage one another as well. We ask this in Jesus' name.